and welcome to this episode of the Young Mormon Feminist Podcast. I am your host, Julia. A highly regarded strategist once said, prepare for the unknown by studying how others in the past have coped with the unforeseeable and the unpredictable. In the early 1990s, the LDS Church disciplined many feminist members for behavior contrary to the laws and orders of the church. Joanna Brooks, now a prominent feminist Mormon thought leader, was a student at BYU during that time and has written and spoken about her experience, including in her book, The Book of Mormon Girl, A Memoir of an American Faith, and with Kendall Wilcox in his upcoming documentary, Far Between. This year, history appears to be repeating. The LDS Church has disciplined several feminists and un- other unorthodox members, including the high-profile excommunication of ordained women founder Kate Kelly. This has left many of the feminist community wondering where we go from here. So to prepare for the unknown, let's study how others in the past have coped with similar situations and discuss what's different this time. Joanna Brooks, a woman who needs no introduction, thank you for joining me today. Yay! <laughs> I just, um, I am so excited to be on Young Mormon Feminists because I love you people. <laughs> I wish this podcast existed when I was, when I was 20 years ago. So hooray for all the Young Mormon Feminists giant group hug. Well, we stand on the shoulders of giants, so. Don't we all? <laughs> Don't we all? I was just emailing Margaret Toscano this morning, checking with her how she's been since June, since Kate's excommunication. So, you know, we all have generations and I love Julia, that you're podcasting and you're encouraging young Mormon feminists to look back at our history. It's really important, and we have fairly few sources through which to study our own history, and there is a 40-year history of Mormon feminist thought and writing, and right now I'm finishing up with Hannah Wheelwright and um, Rachel Steenblick Hunt, an anthology of classic Mormon feminist essays that will be published next year. So studying our history is a great step forward for Mormon feminists. Oh, wonderful. I can't wait to read that. Yeah, all the good stuff in one place. And um, we have a lot to be proud of. Our our movement has depth and richness. Um, but, you know, one thing that Rachel and Hannah and I have also noticed is that we are asking about the same questions as Mormon feminists were asking in 1980. <laughs> and part of it is that we haven't had enough resources as a movement. We've been, like, surviving round after round of, they're coming after us. Okay, we're growing again. There co- that we haven't had enough resources to publish our own books. We don't have our own like academic study centers, you know. So it's really exciting to be getting a book out that will help us connect with and have a guide to our own to the history of our own movement, which we will need to develop the kind of understanding and resilience that we need to nourish ourselves and move forward. That's wonderful. That's a great uh, great resource, especially for the burgeoning feminists. Um, yes. And, and there seems to be a lot of this type of writing these days where Claudia Bushman started the Mormon, um, the, the, what is it, the Mormon Women Project. Yep. Um, and I spoke on a previous podcast with Nancy Ross and Jessica Finnegan, who are doing a lot of social science yep. research on kind of Mormon feminism in our day. Right. But we still have a ways to get recognized, um, you know, and get, get the work of Mormon women scholars and academics honored, even within the field of Mormon studies. And, you know, for example, Margaret Toscano, our greatest Mormon feminist theologian, and probably, I would argue, the greatest Mormon theologian of, of this time, um, you know, her essays are scattered. They're not in one place. They should be. Someone of her stature, a movement of Mormonism size, so that may be a project down the road. But, you know, studying our own writings, studying our own lives is a crucial next step for Mormon feminism. Well, that's wonderful. Well, thank you for your work on that. I'm very excited. 
why don't we start with you sharing your experience um, at BYU and what led you to realize you're a feminist and kind of the subsequent events. I think I was always a feminist. Um, you know, I, I was about eight years old when the ERA stuff started happening, and I was intensely curious about ERA and, of course, coming from a very observant Mormon family, um, you know, my household was anti-ERA, but I wrote like my fourth grade term paper on the Equal Rights Amendment and found myself just in love with its simplicity and power. So, and all the way along, I was a smart girl. And I love that now, um, you know, fourth wave feminists are pointing to the use of the word bossy as a sexist term because I was a bossy girl and know-it-all girl, um, which meant I was a leader in a culture that had few opportunities for women's recognized leadership. Um, both a secular and a religious culture. I grew up in a very conservative area of Southern California. So um, anyway, so um, I, I was always the odd girl, the out girl, the too smart girl. Um, and, and when you combine that with the fact that as an observant Mormon, I didn't do, I didn't drink and I didn't, I didn't have boyfriends, um, in, in the, in the conventional way. I was always the odd girl out in high school, <laughs> too smart, too religious, but still fun. Um, went to BYU and I thought I would find my people and, um, and, and, and in some respects I did, I landed, um, in um, a, a culture that was anchored by a newspaper called the Student Review, which was an unofficial off-campus student newspaper, which has had various resurrections over the years at BYU. I found myself hanging out with Eugene England's daughters. Eugene England is a great Mormon liberal thinker. Um, I found myself on campus at a time when there was a burgeoning progressive student culture at BYU, anchored by um, Jean and some other progressive professors, there was really a moment of opening up and I was just enthralled because I had not grown up in a progressive Mormon household. I had no contact with Exponent 2 or Dialogue or Sunstone. I didn't know any of this existed. And so to find the idea of a place where um, my progressive leanings, my yearning for justice that I had since I was a little girl, my, you know, big heart, big voice, big brain could be embraced in the context of Mormonism was so delicious to me. And I found my way to feminism. And um, the feminist movement was just burgeoning at BYU at that point. Cecilia Conchar-Farr was on campus. She wasn't the only feminist professor on campus, of course, Gloria Cronin, who's just retired, um, Susan Howe. And um, we had, you know, there was, of course, Voice, which was an on-campus feminist group, which I joined actually rather late. But I did join Cecilia Farr's, um, she had a Monday night, we call it Feminist Home Evening, and every Monday night we'd meet at her house and we'd read, and we'd read LDS books and non-LDS books and really do an old-fashioned consciousness-raising group about feminist issues, and um, we had a Take Back the Night um, in Provo, believe it or not, in 92, and... um, I will never forget that, marching through the streets of Provo with the feminists <laughs> late at night. It was awesome. And then all of a sudden, and so much was happening, you know, with voice and with um, theology being published and presented in public by Margaret and the Mormon Women's Forum was active. There was a real momentum building. And then, of course, came the retrenchment, came what Susan Faludi would call the backlash that feminism, not just Mormon feminism, but all feminism has encountered as we've gone through cycles of advances for women and reactions from, um, from a culture that, that has preferred inequality. So in my time, what that backlash looked like was really, really difficult climate for women scholars at BYU. And the university had made a conscious effort to hire many. And it wasn't just Cecilia. There were women in the history department and sociology 
um, who were feminists, who had openly feminist research agendas and commitments, and they were getting confronted at like professional presentations on campus. I mean, they, it was Marty Bradley talks about. It. She's now at the U in a high ranking administrative position, but you know, she talks about people showing up at her research. You know, when she was presenting her research uh, on Mormon women's history, and you know yelling at her and I mean there was just ground level so much microaggression microviolence against women scholars within academic departments at BYU and the most high profile expression of that was that Cecilia Contrafar who was one of my mentors was fired um, in 1993 basically as an extended consequence of giving a pro-choice speech at a now rally in Salt Lake City um, and at the time of Cecilia's firing there were probably um I want to say five or six other feminist faculty decided to leave. Um, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich had been invited to give the keynote at the BYU Women's Conference, which is now the big on-campus women's conference. Um, The invitation was not approved. I mean, here she was, this, like, Pulitzer Prize winning, and, you know, so basically an invitation was sort of disextended to her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a there were a lot of these microaggressions and plain old aggressions against feminists in academia. And um, that same spring, Elder Packer gave uh, a, a now um, in legendary speech to the All Church Coordinating Council, which is a, a basically a coordinating body of higher ranking GAs, in which he named feminist intellectuals and gays and lesbians as the three great dangers to the church. And that started to circulate. And then that fall. Um, Six LDS scholars and intellectuals and feminists, including Levina Fielding Anderson, who had been making a chronicle of what she called ecclesiastical abuse. So instances where church leaders inappropriately used their authority to shame or extra, um, ex- ostracize those with less than orthodox views. Um, she was excommunicated. Um, Lynn Knable Whiteside's of Mormon Women's Forum was disfellowshipped for being really out in public about like Heavenly Mother and other feminist issues. I'm trying to think who are the other six. Um, Michael Quinn, a, a, a gay Mormon historian, was excommunicated. Um, oh my gosh, uh, Maxine Hanks, who had edited the volume Women in Authority, which is you know the last big book of Mormon feminist thought, which was published in '92, was excommunicated. Um, and you know the timing of them all was very proximate. And it, it seemed very clear that this was not priesthood re- leader roulette, um, that there had been um, direct instructions from Salt Lake City, um, probably had, probably, you know, uh, well, through the uh, instruction of probably Elder Packer, but supported by a committee that was uncovered operating at church headquarters called the Strengthening the Members Committee that was keeping files on people who wrote and published um, so, you know, a lot of the things that we've just been through in this last, you know, round with monitoring of people who are in public with less than orthodox views um, and punishment of high profile um, unorthodox Mormons and especially feminists, um, you know, that we, we lived that back then. Yeah, it's it's eerie sometimes, the, the similarities. Oh, it's see. just the cycles. Well, you know, and... It's not an accident, you know, because this is a really just a dark side of Mormon history and Mormon culture. And I think Lindsay Parks' essay up at Feminist Mormon Housewives a few months ago where she tied the way we treat people we perceive to be, the way Mormonism as an institution treats people it perceives to be disloyal and the 
guardedness and the secrecy and militancy. This dates, this comes right down from our 19th century past. We are still acting like we're an embattled frontier people with something to fear. The great promise of the last five years has been, okay, here's the internet, here's a million blogs. Can Mormonism survive if people go a little bit heterodox? If we discuss ideas in public that aren't official ideas, if we disagree respectfully, if we ask hard questions. Um, and the great promise of the Mormon moment for progressives was, yes, we can. Yes, we can. We can love our faith. We can ask hard questions. We can stay in. And it's been very discouraging to see, again, that old 19th century militancy circle back around um, and crack some heads. Right. Well, and some would say, look, we, this was an experiment. We tried it and we failed. We, you, you can't. You can't do it. What do you think that th this has come to a conclusion or what, what do you think the next chapter in the story is? I think that's, a, I mean, the next chapter, young listener, is for you to write and for me to help you write. I'll, you write it, I'll publish it. Um, you know, I, I think this is, we, there are many things that are different about the round of um, disciplinary retrenchment, the round of backlash that we're living through, that we've just been living through now, and what happened in the 90s. There are many things that are different. Um, one of them is, of course, the, the, the Internet. Um, the Internet means that, meant that, first of all, rumors about the excommunications went wild. I mean, we've known everything. You know, so, Women, we are talking about back in the day, these were Xerox newsletters that came by <laughs> snail mail. I And the telephone. That is how, okay, this was, email was really new, you know, like it just, wrap your mind around that. Right, okay. right. <laughs> you know, and so if the great feminist organizing device called Facebook did not exist, right? Right. If blogs did not exist, how would this all go down differently? And one of the things is, you know, the technology has enabled Mormon progressives and feminists to become both more resilient and more vulnerable to these waves of retrench, you know, retrenchment and progress. First of all, we have great tools at our hands to use to build our own communities as progressives, to find friends, to talk online, to give ourselves hope, to share information, to you know, create our own body of thought and writing that we can create our own Mormon feminist reality. The downside is that Facebook is exhausting. People get into distracting flame wars. Um, I don't even think we use the term flame wars anymore. People get into like exhausting threads that just go on forever right. um, without remembering we had this argument two weeks ago because the, the feed has already moved on. So there's a tendency to forget history that, they, that a lot of Twitter and Facebook and everything um, um, can promote. And, and it also makes us more vulnerable to the rumors that come. So, you know, when Kate got her letter you know, people were flipping out and we knew we could monitor much with, with much greater reach how many people were getting letters, who was getting letters, but there's also a tendency to assume that all of these scattered instances at first were part of a great connected plan. Right. And um, I'm pretty sure 93 was totally connected. Um, all the people who were excommunicated were ordered to be excommunicated by the same folks in the church office building. Um I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, Kate's disciplinary action is, you know, um, um, has 
origins um, in the church leadership, but um, some of the other cases that have been grouped with it, we're not clear at all. So I think it's even more important with the technological advances of the internet um, that we keep a cool head. And like Julia, you're asking us to do, we study our history, we get facts, we arm ourselves with good judgment, and we, you know, stay calm and carry on Mormon feminism, you know. So is there a way in which we can become more shockproof, right? That's something the great progressive and feminist theorist who is non-Mormon, LDS, uh, Naomi Klein, talks about how being too easily shocked makes us vulnerable to being taken advantage of politically. You know, we have to keep our heads, know our history, um, and, uh, and, and be courageous. Well, do you think knowing our history in this circumstance is more empowering or more discouraging? Because I think uh, some would think that, well, understanding what happens in 93 is not going to help. <laughs> you feel better about what's happening right now. Here's what I think helps, you know, that, um, yeah, if you want to study our history and see the 20-year cycle from the excommunications of 93 to Kate's excommunication, um, and from Sonia's excommunication to the excommunications of 1993, is that encouraging or discouraging for feminists? Is that a bedtime story you read to keep people in the faith? Mm, probably not. <laughs> um, you know, each of us, and that's what Mormon feminism has been for so long, this is a community where we hold each other as we sort through huge transitions in our lives. And some of us come and go to Mormon feminism as a community. Um, but a lot of us stay to do that crucial work of holding each other, you know, looking at each other and saying, I see you, I hear you, I honor you in this huge transition as you grapple with a faith that does not have its issues around gender worked out, not in the least, where so much is put on our shoulders to work out on behalf of our leaders, on behalf of the church itself. Oh, go work, you know, we carry the burden for the church not having its act together on gender. And so we hold each other as we process the weight of that, as we process our own faith transitions. That's what Mormon feminism does. So does knowing our history make sure we're all going to stay in, stay active, stay in our callings? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but, you know, there's two ways to think about Mormonism. Religious studies scholars think about talk about religions in terms of institutions and in terms of social movements. So if you think about Mormonism only as being the LDS church as an institution, you know, we can't protect the institution against the fact that it doesn't have its, its issues worked out on gender at all, that it's a hot mess. Um, the Mormon movement, the movement of the people who have called themselves Mormons, is different than the LDS church. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And that movement's going to keep moving, and where we go is up to us. And, you know, if Mormonism loses, uh, as a movement loses members, because the church doesn't have its gender issues worked out. That's a terrible loss. Um, it remains to be seen if it's possible to hold on to a kind of your faith and be really resilient to the politics of the institution. So, yeah, I don't know if, the, if we can learn from our history things that will keep us in the church. Um, what I, I do know is that we can learn things that are crucial to carrying the movement the next step forward, to becoming stronger, more resilient, and wiser as activists, knowing what we can do, what we can't do, what the costs are of focusing our activism on the institutional church, um, you know, how to, you know, you know, when excommunication happens, you know, we can 
develop a science of figuring out. It's never fair. It's never right. I, I'm someone who believes that excommunication on theological grounds has no place within um, a contemporary church. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's warranted um, in any in any case of lack of orthodoxy. Um, but you know, we can make we can learn from it and figure out. Okay, when are you likely to get excommunicated? What does it do to a movement when its leaders get excommunicated? You know, what makes us more vulnerable to excommunication, knowing that excommunication just levies such an emotional cost on our community? What are the benefits? What do we need to do to become stronger next time, more resilient, less, more shockproof, um, and more able to, you know, live our faith with confidence, worrying less about what the leaders, leadership in Salt Lake City thinks? Yeah, well, and I think you put your finger on it where you say Facebook is this amazing tool in connecting groups, and that creates this community. But it also opens people up to all kinds of criticism and um, backlash, and a lot of hateful things and hurtful things are said on Facebook among friends and family members to uh, unorthodox views. So how do people how do how do you deal with that? How how should young people who are still really kind of formulating Vulnerable. their life? Oh my gosh, I know, right? When I, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, a lot of you are warriors in the trenches. You are fighting fights, you know, on a daily basis on your walls, and that you know we didn't have to do. Um, and I you know, I salute you. I salute your courage there in the trenches. It is not easy. It's not easy to come out to your family, to your friends, to your parents as a young Mormon feminist. That's not easy. You are going to get a lot of, a lot of pushback. Um, you know, the question, and I think there is a lot that has been accomplished using Facebook to disseminate perspectives information um, that wouldn't otherwise get out about within Mormonism. So, you know, we are a correlated church. We have a set of standard lesson manuals that exclude vast quantities of LDS history, perspective, you know, mm-hmm. and knowledge, theology, understanding. This stuff has been propelled across social networks, you know, by Facebook um, it's crazy to think about Facebook as a tool of theological development, but at the same time, there is so much vulnerability um, that we take on when we come out and post that link on our wall that's going to set it off and let our Laurel advisor know that we're a feminist, like, and all of a sudden people are calling you names, calling you to repentance. You know, I remember being, you know, the worst, what, what I got when I was at BYU you know, we got phone calls. Phone calls happened because back then BYU still had a directory. Did it do that still? It was crazy. You could call the BYU operator and she'd tell you, like, anybody's phone number. Wow. No, yeah. I've never heard of that. Yeah. I mean, people got our phone numbers. Um, we would get phone calls. I remember one day during the Gulf War walking to school, um, and I had been out as an anti-war activist, and, you know, someone rolled up on me in a car and yelled out the window that I was an antichrist because I was, like, against the Gulf War. <laughs> and neighbor and neighbors in my apartment building would leave like mean notes and six packs of beer on my doorstep saying, you know, you, you, you might as well drink beer because you're against the Gulf War. There's some 
great logic for you. Wow. Um, so we had some face-to-face, covert and over pushback, hostility. Um, online is really interesting. And I just think one of the great lessons of this moment in Mormon feminism is how resilient can we be? How, how much can we gird up our loins? Um, you know, in order to be leaders in this church, which is where Kate and the ordained women movement has asked us to take ourselves, has asked us to assume, to really think about assuming a formal leadership role through priesthood ordination. Um, in order to become leaders, leaders have to not care what people think sometimes. Re- leaders have to not look for approval. Leaders have to have within themselves a confidence in their own judgment, um, a, a knowledge of how to network with other leaders to get checks on their judgment when they need it. So, you know, the exercise of putting yourself out there and experiencing disapproval and weathering it makes leaders. It builds us into the people, into the women we have to be if God is going to vest us with the kind of responsibility we deserve and that I believe we're fully capable of it, of, of, of handling we as women in Mormonism have been so ridiculously plugged into caring what other people think. It is off the hook. Like, and our parents too. Mormonism has some extremely unhealthy family dynamics. Not all families, but many. There is an extended parental relationship that persists far beyond what attains the age of maturity. And unless you've been in relationship with people who are not of our faith, you can't see. You don't have anything to compare it to. But like in other cultures, when people grow up, their parents stop telling them what to do sometimes, right? I mean, like <laughs> that kind of happens. Not That's always. Novel. It's it's crazy. Um, well, I mean, you know, our parents' exaltation is dependent on us, right? The extent of the eternal glory is okay. So we are enmeshed in a very particular way. Right. And I remember reading, you know, some some young Mormon feminist post on like you know, on, on, on one of the blog, on one of the Facebook groups in the last couple months, it was like, her dad is writing her le- letters from his mission telling her not to cut her hair. And she wants to cut her hair. And she's wrestling with it. And it's like, oh, honey, you've got to stop talking to your dad. I mean, there is a part in the book of Genesis where it says you need to leave your parents and cleave to your spouse. Um, and, you know, we are, whether or not you're married, there is a time to step away from seeking approval. Right. Um, and, you know, the, the pain of Facebook, um, the, the hurt that's entailed in coming out and having people that you grew up with not approve of you is something we've just got to grow a thick skin on. Because to be a leader, to be leaders, you have to sometimes not care what people think if you know by your moral compass that you're doing what's right. Wow. That takes a lot of courage. <laughs> it does. And, you know, that's the other thing I was thinking this morning, preparing um, for this. And I was thinking one other thing, you know, I, I isolated myself a lot after ni- uh, when, and when 93 happens. I've always been a pretty private person, you know, even though I write um, about parts of my life, I'm actually really private. And I really believe in keeping your privacy and in giving yourself the sacred space you need to to sort through, through these hard questions. You don't have to explain every movement on your, in your heart to people around you, you know, guard that privacy. And I did that a lot in 93. Um, I always found myself, if I could afford to, living in, like, my own studio, crappy studio apartment, so I would have space and privacy not to have to explain things. But, um, 
the, um, you know, the other thing I found myself thinking about that I made a conscious decision when I was y'all's age was I looked around at the women I, I admired, like Cecilia, um, and I knew that I, even though I was pretty well cut out to be a Mormon feminist writer, scholar, person, that I could, I had to build a life where I would be, um, where the church couldn't hurt me, that they couldn't take away my career, my salary, my marriage, nothing they could do could touch anything I had. That was a place I had to develop for myself, that kind of very pragmatic independence in order to keep doing what I wanted to do. Um, so that meant, you know, knowing that I would never, ever, ever work for BYU, knowing that I would never, ever, ever work for any kind of church or Mormon owned institution, that I needed a career and a salary. I needed financial independence to give myself the right to freedom of conscience. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I know a lot of Mormon, this is tough and like our, we are, you know, we take, even Mormon feminists, you know, we take turns with our spouses you know, especially if you're married to an LDS guy, you might still live in a more conventional marriage and you may be dependent on his income, but having security is foundational to freedom of conscience. So I made a lot of choices when I was in my 20s to get myself independent so I wouldn't be physically vulnerable, materially vulnerable to push back from people who hated feminism. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So that's one bit of advice I'd give is get your education on, get your career on, know how to make your own money. So much comes from that. And that's something that Mormon women have been explicitly discouraged from doing. And again, this is part of becoming leaders, understanding how money works, understanding how power works, understanding how institutions work. So that was one of my reactions to 93 was to get my career on and be in a place where no one could hurt me if they decided to take away my membership. They couldn't also take away my job. They couldn't also take away my marriage. Wow. Well, and I think that there have been other women who have followed the same path because I don't see that same um, contingent of feminist professors at BYU. Right. And right. I don't know whether that's through self-selection or whether that's right. through hiring practices. But, I mean, oh, we, yeah. we still have um, Feminist Home Evening, but it's not professor-led by any stretch. Right. You know, we right. don't have, BYU does not have the same um, group of feminist mentors. Right. I it's mean, just, it's not to say there aren't any, but it's just not that, you know, there's not this core group that is similar to what you described. Well, it's a huge loss. And y'all are having to do this very bravely and very independently. And my hats are off to you. Um, and, you know, hopefully by, you know, getting our publishing on, you know, we can at least give ourselves books to mentor ourselves through this. Books are always a good source when there's not a person. But you have each other and you can hold each other through this big transition. But, no, you're right. I was sitting with Andrea Radke Moss, who's a wonderful historian of Mormon women's and women's experience, who's up at BYU, Idaho. And we were talking about, you know, the pressures um, and the many, many disincentives for bright, enterprising young Mormon women to do scholarship on women's issues, um, scholarship on Mormon women's history. There are many institutional barriers to us doing it. I, was, I had an email from Laurel Thatcher Ulrich last week. I'm not name-dropping. I'm, I'm not name-dropping. I'm just telling y'all. <laughs> we all talk. The, the good networks you're forming now will continue, and there's this wonderful network of Mormon feminist care and relationship that holds us through all of our lives. So I'm so grateful for that. And, the, you know, what you're doing is so important 
now building these networks because they guarantee this future network of relationships as you all go through many different stages in your lives. But um, Laura was Laura was very plain. She's like, you know, smart smart young women in Mormonism know that this Mormon stage is not the place to be. You know, it's just too hard. There's too many obstacles. So yeah, the you know what happens when backlash works a little bit. Right. Is that we we lose a we lose mentors? They're still there. You just have to know who they are. They have to be really secret about it. Hmm. If you slip a note under the door, I'll tell you who they are. <laughs> but you have to burn it or eat the note after I pass it back to you. Okay? Self destruct. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, one thing you talked about in your experience uh, when you were at BYU is that because of the excommunications, you no longer had any role models of how to stay in the church and make it work. And I think that, that it's different now because there are so many people, not necessarily at BYU, but there are so many people in the feminist space right. talking and a, a yes. portion of them stay active in the church and try to make yes, it work. absolutely. How do you make it work? <laughs> the, the million dollar I, question I have not been making it work for the last two months Okay. Um, Kate's excommunication was really hard on me um, in ways I didn't anticipate and I've been I you know I have not been on I have I have been absent from the Facebooks I, I noticed that and I wrote a question about that I'm like I noticed that you took a Facebook break I well that everyone should take a Facebook break it's a great thing um, I also got a new job at work which is more time intensive and demanding I'm a I'm a dean now <clears throat> so yeah so I have to be a little more nine to fivey which gives me a little less juice to write those posts between eleven and one a.m. Um, <laughs> But, um, yeah, no, right now I'm in a very, um, I'm having an argument with God. Um, it's, God is patient and, um, I'm trying to figure out what's next for me. And I hope that, and I, and I haven't wanted to say anything because, um, I mean, I, you know, I'll always be Mormon. Come on. Where else am I, where else am I going to be? <laughs> but, um, I have not found it in my heart to attend in the last couple months. Um, and, uh, God will find a way with me, <laughs> but I, I haven't wanted to say anything because I have always wanted to be most of all encouraging and in the deepest sense of that word, not just blithely encouraging, like it's going to be great, you know, cause <laughs> who knows? Cause it's not but necessarily, I don't know. It's that it's not honest to right. say that, um, but encouraging in the sense of giving courage, giving heart, you know? So I, do, I haven't known exactly how to do that. And I've even been more frank in this podcast and more, like, confrontational than I usually am with sort of a tough love message to feminists, like, be shockproof, get your career on, get ready, don't care what people think. Um, maybe that's where the message for all of us needs to go next. We can't be surprised. We can't, you know, this is what this entails. We will take breaks sometimes. We may not have answers sometimes. Sometimes we might step away. Sometimes we might step back. Um, I don't know what to say. I don't have wisdom right now. And that's very hard because I really want to have wisdom for everyone. Um, and, you know, all I can say is get your career on. <laughs> <laughs> well, and some people look at, uh, I mean, church activity is not a in or out dichotomy. It, it's it's not this binary thing. It's a, really a spectrum. Yeah. Um, where people will go on various levels of that spectrum throughout their lives. And I think that that's, 
I, I think that's important for people to understand and remember is that okay. the decision to not attend church for one, you know, if, if, if you're not attending church, it doesn't right. have no, to no. be a decision forever. You know, nothing is forever. See, now that's a great bit of wisdom that my life has certainly borne out, that there are lots of chapters. And, you know, and um, I think if I remember back correctly, you know, and it would just, I just welcome having a really open conversation about, you know, what do we need to say to each other to make sense of these big transitional moments for us? And one thing that I always felt pressure to do was to make some kind of announcement to my family, some definitive and, you know, one thing that life has taught me is you don't got to do that. <laughs> you know, like if you were to write the letter today that explained it all to your parents um, and your Laurel advisor and all the people you grew up with, um, if you were to put it in a drawer and wait two months, it would be like a, a, a letter from another era. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's how fast things move in our faith lives sometimes. Um, and that's the wonderful refuge God uh, affords us in prayer is privacy. You know, like you can, like, I, I love the scripture in the New Testament where it talks about how Mary reflected on her unique experience. She cherished all these things in her heart. You know, like there is a vast space inside of us for reflection, for deliberation. You know, Facebook teaches us we have to put every little shift up online, maybe even podcast about it. But the truth is we don't, and you don't owe anyone an explanation. Um, and you can take all the time you want and sometimes choosing not to write the big dramatic letter, make the big statement, pressure yourself into a decision, um, is actually a really healthy choice. You can just be for a while and not explain yourself. Yeah. One thing I've done in, in my, my journey is that I've made the decision to not, once I've come to some kind of conclusion in my uh, you know, studies and whatever, not to tell anyone about it for six months. Oh, um, that's nice. And then, because it probably changes in a few months. That's right. And then it's six months from then, and then it's six months from then. And that's not so that I stay quiet, because that's not healthy either. Right. But it's so that I don't make this grand declaratory statement only yes. to feel tied to that when I have a change of heart or I study more or what what have you something changes in my relationship with God and with the church right that would be different than <laughs> the that's that's and Julia that's wise that's wisdom you know we and we deserve privacy because because Mormonism is an enmeshed um often has enmeshed family and social structures, right? Everyone in the ward wants to know your business. Everyone's looking at everybody. And that has a historical value. It's wonderful to be in such a living religious community where we do care about each other, where we are in active relationship to each other. But it can also lead to some unhealthy enmeshment in each other's choices. And, you know, reserving that place for privacy, um, where we don't have to explain ourselves, where we can be slow, um, where, you know, it's... It's, it's good. It's good. Because when you make the grand announcement, you're going to have to start dealing with other people's reactions. They're going to project that on you and make their own lack of willingness to think hard about gender and Mormonism your fault and your responsibility. You deserve the right not to work out other people's problems for them. And sometimes that means not borrowing their trouble by just keeping your business private and keeping it 
doing your discussing and figuring out in spaces that are supportive that will be a lift and a strength to you rather than a drain, right? Does that make sense? Because mm-hmm. if you go home and mom and dad are really observant, you know, they're going to freak out. They're going to cry. You're going to have to make them feel better. You're going to be exhausted. And that takes from you. And this is a time in your life when you need your resources to build your life, to build the future of this movement. So how, I think there's a fine line with that too, though, is that if you continue on status quo, um, everything is fine, kind of that frontal face, and then behind the scenes, you're really fighting this internal battle and struggle and figuring out how do you feel like you're living authentically uh, um, when you feel like you have kind of two people there? Well, that's, and that's a good question because I think there's an alternative model. Um, and I think, you know, the two people thing again is very Mormon, like as a minority, as a distrusted maligned and, and historically persecuted minority, you know, we've learned to cultivate a, a public face um, that we hope is acceptable, that is, you know, that um, America will like, that will keep us safe. We've done this for centuries now. Um, and, you know, also in support of, like, you know, the faith-promoting experience of church, we've been taught to keep, you know, a certain kind of discipline in our demeanor and our speech, not say some things. Um, but that's not the only way to be a private person. Like, you can go to church... Um, and, you know, be yourself and not act like everything's okay and yet not give away everything that you're working out privately for yourself. Mm-hmm. And then that's a culture shift, though. Like, what if we actually went to church as vulnerable people? You know, how would that change the whole conversation around gender? Instead of going, like, you know, either as total believers or as total questioners with, like, the feminist, you know, catechism to read... What if we went, we're just like, look, I'm, I'm uncomfortable and I'm hurting. I'm here and I'm not ready to talk about it. Can you say that in a Mormon ward? Can you say that in a Mormon family? Like, I'm, I'm here, but I'm not ready to talk. I don't feel safe talking. I don't, I, I don't know what to say. Is there room for that kind of softness? And if we are that soft, will it allow others around us to be soft and to be tentative and to be confused as well? I don't know. It's a, it's a big experiment, but I agree. It's unacceptable to go back to the model of pretending like everything is okay, which is a very familiar Mormon model. I'm wondering if there's a, a, a third way hmm. that's neither aggressive with answers nor, you know, um, hunky-dory, everything is okay, but soft and tentative and private. Yeah, interesting. Well, there's – since probably – Elder Oaks' talk in April General Conference about um, the intersection of women and the priesthood. There have been multiple lessons on women and the priesthood in the wards that I've attended, and I'm sure in wards across the world. Um, And in those lessons, there have been some sharp, negative, very critical comments by lesson givers and other more members about... Ordained women. Right, ordained women, silly feminists, those women. Um, so it seems like this movement has kind of awakened some dormant feelings. Absolutely. In the membership um, towards feminists. How 
do we deal with this when we're coming so vulnerable to church already? How do we deal with this uptick of in-church criticism? Not just Facebook, not people you haven't talked to for 10 years. These are your friends, your neighbors, your ward members, and they are saying things that they may not know they're saying it about you. Right. But I mean, I, they are. I, and I, I, two, two thoughts. I mean, one is it's helpful for us as feminists to have an analysis of conservative women and how they get their power. Um, and we are not the only religious culture in which women get status in a community by disciplining other women. Women get status by acting submissive. Hmm. Acting submissive, as ironic, as paradoxical as that sounds. Marie Griffith is a you know, Ivy League scholar of American religion, has studied this among evangelical women. The power of submission, how acting in acting submissive, acting, right? Performing roles of submission actually conveys all kinds of power. So there, you know, these women take refuge. Our, our sisters who take it out on other sisters, who take pride in their orthodoxy, are power hungry in a very particular way. They are as hungry for, they, they are at least as hungry for power as any of us. They're just seeking it through culturally approved channels. And those channels are cultural, right? They, they have, you know, they have given the seal of approval to a certain, you know, tone of voice, a certain passive aggressiveness, you know, the, and it's wrong. Mormon women have made currency and derived power from self-denial, from victimization, from martyrdom. That's the old school way of doing things. So we have major, major work ahead, you know, in, and, and us standing up and asking for a different kind of power, for a power that's, or, you know, trying to exercise a different kind of power, a power that's more straightforward. Because I don't like asking. I was never comfortable with the, with the ask method, you know, asking for priests or asking for revelation. But just standing up as a Mormon woman and saying, I will be powerful. I will speak my mind. Um, I will, you know, not use the, not use the approved tone. Um, I will make my own money. I will make my own choices. I will meet with you on my terms. Um, that that is extremely unsettling to to these models of how women should behave and should derive their power. Um, and our sisters who are more conservative are just as power hungry as anyone else. Make no mistake. So you know that needs to be addressed. But your question is really so having that critique can help arm us. It's like mm-hmm. they're seeking power over me. Like they're seeking power, period. They're doing this to build their own chits, to impress their friends, to impress the bishop, to get status in the only way they know how. And it's shameful. Um, but, you know, then the question falls is how do then I go to church since this is the only spot for me, you know, to practice my faith in an organized way right now? Um, how do I go to church vulnerable and hurting? And how do I be a strong kind of vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. A, a vulnerable where, you know, I can admit that I don't have all the answers. And yet I'm not going to let anyone in this room mortally wound me. I'm not going to, like, allow them to get in my head and get between me and God, right? So how do we model that openness and that softness that, that shuts down the harsh answers? Um, and, and that's an art form. I think of people like Laurel. But Laurel's been in more forgiving environments for years. She has a world carved out there in Massachusetts, you know. Like, I, the only thing we can say is... You are talking about me, and leave it at that. You are talking about me. Just, I'm here. Hmm. You're talking about me. You don't have to. You don't have to come back with like, well, don't you know George Albert Smith? 
changed the language from the keys were turned to turned on behalf of to the keys were turned to. You don't have to go back through. Well, don't you know the endowment is a form of ordination? And didn't you realize you don't have to go through the doctrine when you're dealing with people who are that aggressive. You just have to just say, this is me. You're talking about me. Hmm. That's powerful. It's That's huge. Yeah. It, you know, you don't have to lay the whole thing out. I've worried about this for years, and here's where you're wrong, and here's the doctrine, here's the chapter and verse. If you only read this essay, you'd understand. If you only read this blog post, you'd understand. Just be like, you know what, you're talking about me. Right, well, it brings it from the abstract to the concrete for them right. so they understand that they're, what they're saying has actual effects on people present and well, yeah. just these random feminists kind of, that they would imagine would be out there. Oh, and that was the genius of pants, right? That was the genius right. of pants was you're talking about me. This is me. That's great. Now, one thing you talked about is how important it is for Mormon feminists to write. Um, now, is that an encouragement for people to enter academia and do scholarly writing, or, or are there other ways that people can participate in that? Oh, any way. Your voice matters. Your perspectives on this moment in history matter so much. Um, you know, we are a record-keeping people, us Mormons, and um, I, I I know as a, um, as someone who's worked in archives, part of my day job, you know, the our writings about these crucial periods in the life of our people and the history of the Mormon people are what future historians will look to. They they will read your blog posts. They will you know turn to your words to understand how you know members of this remarkable faith movement made sense of you know, God's very slow workings with us, you know. <laughs> so you've got to write, you've got to blog, you've got to journal. Not all of it has to be published either. You've got to journal. The discipline of writing is so helpful in a spiritual life. Um, and, you know, you can write just for your own pleasure. I keep a crappy notebook, you know, like literally like a composition notebook from the drugstore mm -hmm. that I write in all the time. Not important, you know, just where my heart is um, in relationship to faith questions. And um, so it's important. Personally, it's important for history. Um, yeah, please write. But you don't have to do it for a living. If you want to, <laughs> go ahead. We'll, ment we'll mentor you. Reach out. We'll help. Um, but you don't have to do it for a living to do it. That's great. Well, one thing that uh, I was been thinking about is that, you know, you've talked about Twitter is not, is the kind of the fastest way to lose the message, <laughs> you know, like something shows up for five seconds and then it's gone. Um, Facebook is the same thing where it shows up in a, a news feed and then, you know, people comment on five other things and all of a sudden it's buried. So how do we keep this lasting record of Mormon feminism beyond, you know, Facebook and Twitter where a lot of people spend a lot of time writing yeah. a lot of different things? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. This is a great question. We've got to figure out. This is one of the downsides of the great digital revolution, right? Is um, it, it's, it's memory. Um, it's memory gap is... It, it's memory function is very poor. 
Um, I think, you know, maybe one of the things we can work on together as Mormon feminists, you know, it, at, as we grow more resilient to push back from the institution, then we can really focus on our own agenda for growing our movement. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It takes a lot out of us when we're so, like, and of course, we it means so much to us. Like, I was physically ill in June, you know, like, during, I was scared, I was scared, you know, I was sad, I was mad, um, you know, I found myself, like, I had to excuse myself in front of my daughters. I went and, like, sobbed in the garage for 20 minutes one night just because people were like, are you, is your letter coming, you know? Um, and I knew I was okay. Um, but the physical, it's so physical, our relationship to the church. Our, it's physical. It's, in our, it's our families. It's, it's so, oh, it is painful. Um, but if we can grow more resilient, then we can focus on what we need to do to continue to get back on our feet and advance our movement. And I think a big next step for us is to really begin to study our own history as Mormon feminists and to make that an important part of what it means to be a Mormon feminist so that I've seen African-American feminists and others do this. You know, we've got to carry our own history with us. We don't have, there are not like university departments, endowed chairs, you know, seminars like really for us. We could build those things as places where we can come to learn from each other and know what it means to really know our history. But until those things are set up, we are carrying it on our backs. And do we have a regard for history? Is history something that matters? Now, mind you, we don't really have the tools. We haven't had a lot of the tools. Our books are out of print. We don't have recent books. So that's why Hannah and Rachel and I wanted to get this anthology out so that we have something to study, to gather around as a text. But, you know, that's a, this is the next step for us is like how do we have richer conversations, more informed conversations? How do we bring people in and teach them about the history of our movement, where the questions have been? I think blogs have done a great job instead of developing, you know, the frequently asked questions sheets. And people, when they come to feminism, will spend like, you know, 15 hours with like 40 Diet Dr. Peppers reading the entire backlog of YMF or FMH and getting up to date on all the issues. So... We have that in terms of history, but I think you've asked an important question. What would it mean to really give our conversations the historical depth and anchoring they need to allow the movement to mature? I don't know. Let's go there. <laughs> well, it sounds like this anthology is a great step. When I, I'm a fan. <laughs> when will it be published? It's, we are getting it into the press in January, so it should be out late next year. So exciting. That's yes. awesome. Well, congratulations on that, and thank you so much for joining me and talking about oh, thank you for asking. these important issues. It's thank great. you for doing this podcast, and you know, each of you, thank you for staying courageous. It's so important. Um, um, I, I don't know if I was helpful at all. I'm you know, clearly at a moment where if it wasn't YMF, I wouldn't have done the podcast, but I think of you and I think of me when I was 21, and it gets better, people. <laughs> you heard it from Joanna Brooks. It gets better. <laughs> well, thank you so much. All right. I appreciate thank you, it. Julia.